Psalm 78, verse 9 through 31, these are God's words. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime also he led them with the cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? And he provide meat for his people. Therefore Yahweh heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He had rained down manna on them to eat, and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all round their dwellings. So they ate and were filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving. But while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. This is describing why we need the word of God day by day in the home, week by week in the assembly. Uh, he has told us in verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel and that uh, this would be taught from one generation to the next. Uh, the idea is both in the home, Deuteronomy 6, and in the assembly. Why? Verse 7, so that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And the reason he gave that to these people is because they themselves were wicked. They're to do this for their children so that their children will not be like they are. So that the children will, verse 8, not be like their fathers. Uh, and now he's des describing that stubborn, rebellious generation that did not set its heart aright. Uh, which is why when we were beginning in uh, in our worship just now, we were praying from Psalm 95, and we were praying from Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, about not being like those who, when they heard his voice in the wilderness, went astray in their hearts and went to hell. It's not just that they fell in the wilderness and didn't enter the land. When Hebrews 3 and 4 explains Psalm 95, it says, Psalm 95 was written hundreds of years after the wilderness wanderings. What it's talking about 
as not failing to enter the land of rest, meaning a tract of, uh, of Palestine in the, uh, in the Near East, uh, that you would be in for some 70 or 80 years. It's talking about entering God's final rest when you have ceased from your works in this world. The reason God still extends to us a Sabbath-keeping, the day on which we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the day in which we use the word of God. And it's not just men who address us by the word of God, for then we would have no hope. But it's Jesus from heaven who attends his word with his power, so that if we reject him and his word, his preaching, his word in, in family worship also, uh, then we are resisting the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we, uh, we are bringing ourselves closer and closer to that dreadful position in Hebrews chapter 6, where, um, where there is no longer hope for repentance. And we never know when we have come to that place uh, in this life. And so he says, uh, that he's given them the word so that they would not be like their fathers. Uh, and there's an implication for those fathers who are to teach their children the word, uh, that this word may also work for them. Although it's sobering that for those who are already set in their ways, set in their hearts, set in their mind, gotten closer to the point of no return, that Hebrews, to which the opening verses of Hebrews 6 uh, refers, that there is, humanly speaking, less hope than there is for the children. Uh, and yet Deuteronomy 6 had said, let these words be in your heart, and then speak of them with your children. So there is hope uh, for us all in the word of God, and it's hope uh, to teach us the lesson that Israel failed to learn from the mighty works of God. And uh, he talks, verse 9, then, about the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows, being turned back in the day of battle because they had refused to walk in his law. Why had they refused to walk in his law? Why did they not keep the covenant? Why did they receive covenant curse? Which part of the covenant curse was that they would flee from their enemy, and part of the covenant blessing was that one of them would chase a hundred of their enemy. Why did that happen to them? Because they... Uh, had refused to walk in his law. Why had they refused to walk in his law? Verse 10, because they had forgotten his works. Uh, verse 11, and the wonders that he had shown them. He lists some of those works. Uh, the plagues that he, uh, that he brought on Egypt as marvels and signs uh, in verse 12. The dividing of the Red Sea uh, in verse 13. His own miraculous appearing to them by cloud and by fire in verse 14. His giving them water from the rock, which itself was already a response to their complaining and their grumbling. And yet in mercy, he did a marvel and gave them water from the rock in verses 15 and 16. And despite all of those things, and sure, they rejoiced, I'm sure, over when God plagued the Egyptians. They rejoiced. We have a, uh, we have the song of Moses and then Miriam leading the women in Israel, uh, singing the song of Moses. Uh, after God had given them deliverance at the Red Sea. Uh, they rejoiced, I'm sure, when God gave them water that gushed out of the rock and caused the streams, uh, the waters to run down like rivers, verse 16. And so we can't rest on the idea that we've had times in which we thought about great things that Jesus has, uh, God has done uh, in Jesus uh, and that we felt warm and fuzzy about them. We can't say, oh, well, I'm safe because... I felt warm and fuzzy once uh, about Jesus dying for sinners. 
Because if we're still grumblers and complainers, and we don't trust in God for the present, and we don't trust in God for the future, then are we really remembering his works? No, remembering his works means you cling to Christ, and over against everything that your fleshliness wants to say in anxiety or grumbling or discouragement, and over everything in your circumstances, you say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me, he will surely together with him give me all things. So even if I'm led as sheep to the slaughter, even if I'm killed all day long, even if I'm under attack by demons and won't leave me alone and I have all of these troubling thoughts all the time, he who did not spare his own son but gave Jesus to me will with Jesus together with him give me all things. God is for me. Even if all these things are against me, and all of these things cannot prevail against me if God is for me. That's how faith in Jesus Christ trusts God in the present and trusts God for the future. Because remembering his wondrous works doesn't just mean we have a mental recollection of his wondrous works. It means we know the God with whom we act, or or with whom we interact, is the same as he was then. His character is the same as he was as it was then. His purposes are the same as, as they were then. He is saving me, no matter what. And so, what the what the word of God is for, verse seven, is that they may set their hope in God. And what it's trying to prevent in us is that we would not forget His works, verse eleven. We would not do as they did. Look at verse twenty-two. When they, when they commit their rebellion in verses 17 through 20 and they say, can he give us bread too? Can he give us meat too? How does God, uh, describe that response from them? The, the fury and the fire and the anger in verse 21 arise because verse 22, they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. You see, that's the right response to his works and his wonders, isn't it? To believe in God today, that he is still carrying out his saving of me today. That everything that comes in his providence, and despite the continuation of my remaining sin, which feels like a wall within my members, Romans 7, despite those things, God, who did those wonders to save me then, and now those wonders for us, are not... You know, plagues on Egypt and Red Sea crossings and fire and cloud and water from a rock. The wonders are God himself become a man, dying on a cross, rising from the dead. Greater wonders. And the way to remember him and respond to him rightly is to say, even despite my continuing battle with remaining sin and my continuing battle with doubt and all of the difficult things that I suffer at the hands of others and uh, and uh, in more ordinary uh, providence in, in God's creation. What unbelievers would call natural disasters, but what I call the hand of the providence of my God. That no matter what I suffer from myself or from others or from devils or in the world, God is saving me. God who came and died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he's saving me. I trust his salvation. Verse 22. But we're not going to trust his salvation unless we use the means by which he works in us the hope to trust in his salvation. 
That's why he gave a law and a testimony in Israel that we would have day by day, morning and evening in the home, week by week, morning and evening in the assembly, the words of God that he uses to cure the rebellious heart, to hold back and suffocate the remaining sin. And notice that if instead of using God's word to view God's providence this way, we receive from God instead what our hearts crave. That's not mercy. That's wrath. He causes the east wind to rise again, to blow in the heavens. Uh, this is directly related uh, to... Uh, he doesn't use the exact language here, but he did use the exact language in the actual crossing of the Red Sea. Right? So verse 13, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. That ha- that happened by a strong east wind. This time, this time he brings the wind, but not in mercy. Because as the quail drop around them, and as they start killing and eating, and they're full, what are they full of? Verse 29 and 30. Their own desire their craving, their food for their mouths. You hear the repetition and how it's telling us that God giving us what we want is not love. It's wrath. Just like a parent who always gives their child what they want doesn't love them. It's a way to hate your child is to give them whatever they want. And so with the food still in their mouths, the wrath of God comes upon them, the plague starts and he, and he kills the stoutest of them and strikes down the choice men of Israel. I'm not sure that the Spirit gave us that piece of information in the original, uh, in, the, uh, in the narrative as they were in the wilderness. That the ones who were killed in the plague were the strongest and best from man's perspective uh, of them. So what a mercy of God that he continues to give us his word. Uh, I think each of us uh, feel must feel, if we're paying attention and spirit helping us feel convicted about how much we want the Lord to give us our own desires, the things that we think would really make things well in the church or really make things well in the family. Uh, maybe you don't think about those things as much as I do. Maybe you do, by God's grace to you. Uh, or the things that we think would really make things better for my life, if I could have this, if someone would do that. And then he comes to us in his word and says, that's not what makes things better in your life. What makes things better in your life is trusting my salvation. Remembering in your daily interactions with God that he is the God of the cross and the God of the resurrection and the God of the ascension and the God of the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, the God who plagued Egypt and split the sea and was in pillar of cloud and fire and water from the rock, but those are so small by comparison to what we have now. May the Lord do for us and in us by his word so that we would not be those who go astray in our hearts and rebel against him and continue to think and live as if getting our desires would be a mercy. May God give us what he desires in his wisdom and his love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and bless you for this portion of your word, for giving it to us today. Uh, Lord, 
uh, I bless your name for the wisdom of your providence and giving me to have to have these words in my mouth for the family after the morning that I had, so that as a good father you come with your correction. And I pray that not just for me, but for all of us, that you would by your spirit make us wise and that your word of rebuke would enter deeper into us than a hundred blows, would enter deeper into us than uh, much difficult providence, that you would even be pleased to spare us the hard providence by doing the work in us by your word softening the heart. Grant it, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.